Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Today we will continue in the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians, uh, that letter that Paul writes to the church in Colossae. And um, what a great letter. And we've been talking about the kingdom of the sun and how we have been taken out of the domain of darkness and moved into the kingdom of the son, Jesus Christ, by the hand of the father. And Jesus is our eternal king. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is the revealer of God to us. And he is the one who died on the cross for our sins to make it possible for us to be citizens in the kingdom. And that pathway to citizenship is faith in Jesus Christ. And we've been talking now that we are citizens in the kingdom, what does life look like for us? Should it be different? And the short answer is yes. Now that we've been moved out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, our lives should look differently. And like we talked about last week, beginning with a willingness to sacrifice yourself in order to bring the good news of the gospel and discipleship into the lives of others. That every believer is called to create disciples. And every disciple-making believer will be required to sacrifice in order to fulfill that mission. And what will sacrifice look like? Well, it's going to look different for all of us. Some of us, it's kids' ministry. Some of us, it's adult ministry. Some of us, it's youth ministry. Some of us, it's evangelism. But if you are not sacrificing yourself for the sake of the kingdom, you are not yet fully living the life that you're supposed to be living in the kingdom. And then this week, we're going to be talking about the treasure of Christ, which is what we talked a little bit about last week, or really was the focus. We have that treasure, that knowledge of Jesus Christ, who's worth more than anything else. The treasure of Christ versus the empty deceit of human tradition. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible app, open them up. We're going to be looking at at, uh, Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 10 of Colossians chapter 2. And some of you might look at verse 3 and go, wait, wait, wait. We read that last week. Yes, but we need to reiterate it so we get the point. So if you will, follow along as I read from Scripture. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. 
So just to reiterate, verse 3 reminds us once again what we discussed last week. And it is the simple fact that in Christ Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you are looking for wisdom, if you are looking for direction, if you are looking for purpose and meaning in life, the only place to look is Christ Jesus. He is the only answer. He is the only one in whom you can find life and meaning and purpose. And so if you are looking anywhere else, you are looking amiss. You are looking in the wrong place. And, and so to, just to remember, he is the treasure. And so Paul then continues to write to us and says this, I am saying this. Well, what is it that he's saying? What is it that he's already said? It's that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he says this for a reason. I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Now, if you remember, this church was uh, struggling with false teachers who were coming in and saying, I've got a secret knowledge for you. You Follow after my teaching. Learn my ways, and I'll show you the secret path to the one true God. And Paul has already refuted that in so many ways by saying that Jesus is the revelation of the one true God. He physically manifests the character of God. And was creator and sustainer and is the one who gives new life, the redeemer. And so Jesus is the one true answer, Paul says. He is all of the treasure that we could ever long for. But this church was facing false teachers who were coming in and they were beginning to teach things that sounded reasonable. Things that made sense. Have you ever been in a Bible study like that? And, uh, uh, or a Bible study where someone just says something and maybe it doesn't jive with Scripture, but it makes good sense. Oh, yeah, that makes sense to me. And then you, you do some more study and you do a little bit more research and, and you find out that, that they, they were just making stuff up. I mean, it sounded good, but, but they were just saying things that felt good to them, not that correlated with Scripture. And so the the fear that's here is that we will be deceived, will be led astray. We will be tricked by arguments that sound reasonable and and, and stray from the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, you might think, well, I'm I'm too good for that. Uh, There's no way that I could be tricked. Well, let's, let's look at some of the deception that's already happened in Scripture up to this point, right? Everybody remembers Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. I'm sure you do, because it is here that we see that the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see, this argument of, did, did God really say that? Did God really mean what he said? Did, is that really... The answer, it's, it starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden and the temptation of Adam and Eve. And, and we have to remember that Adam and Eve, if anybody other than Jesus would be considered perfect, it would be Adam and Eve. They were at the pinnacle of, of creation. They were the, the perfect man and woman. In fact, God declared them and everything as part of the initial creation very good. Not just, hey, that's all right, but yeah, that is very good. 
And so this very good woman is deceived by an argument that sounds reasonable. Well, you know, maybe, maybe God didn't say that. Maybe he meant something else. Uh, in fact, maybe I know better than God. Maybe I found a secret way to understand him. Now, Eve is not the first one, but, but she also uh, sets the stage in her choice for all of us. Because we, we all will fall prey to reasonable sounding arguments. In Genesis 6, just prior to the flood, God is looking out over all of mankind. And this is what is said. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that sometimes people uh, had desires that didn't line up with his. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that sometimes people fell short. Sometimes people thought wrong things. Sometimes people were deceived and mistaken. Instead, it says this, that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. We can see our condition as people that Left to ourselves, we are prone to thinking thoughts and pursuing things that are not just sort of off the charts or not quite as good as they could be. That ultimately, left to our own devices, left to our own choices, left to our own logic and reasoning, that we will land in a place where every, every inclination of our mind will be nothing but evil all the time. Left to ourselves, that's where we land. Now, some of you might think, well, I'm a little bit better than that. And I have to tell you, the only reason you're better than that today is because of the work of the Holy Spirit within you. Without Christ, without the restraining hand of the Holy Spirit on mankind as a whole, we would be in the same places and, and likely even worse as they were here before the flood. And in fact, if we look at culture overall, we're but just a stone's throw away from the evils that they were perpetrating in those days. And, and not only was this the case, but Proverbs fourteen twelve Solomon writes this, one of the wisest men other than Christ who's ever lived. He says this, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. In other words, we've all come to circumstances and situations where there was a decision to be made. And the decision that we make sounds good to us. It makes perfect sense to us. And then we watch it unfold over the course of our life and watch how it brings death. And maybe not physical death, but spiritual death or loss or destruction in our lives. Can you see that in your own life where something that made perfect sense, a way that seemed perfectly right to you when you made the choice, by the time that choice played out, it didn't bring anything but death and loss in your life. And so we must understand we must understand something about ourselves. That when we pursue things that make sense to us, there is a very good chance, if we are making such a choice apart from the truth of Christ, that where we will end up is death. And once again, I'm not talking about pushing up daisies. I'm talking about the death of your spirit, the death of your circumstances, the death of your relationship. You pursued your own desires. You pursued your own heart and ended up in a circumstance worse than where you started. Jeremiah, God says this to the people of Israel, and it speaks to us as well. 
You did more evil than your ancestors. Look, each one of you was following the stubbornness of his evil heart, not obeying me. That all of us, once again, left on our own, apart from the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if we are simply following what makes sense to us and our own desires, we will land in a place that is disobedient and separated from God every single time. A little bit later in Jeremiah, we see this said of us, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Do you understand now as we read these things about us and these descriptions about how easily we can be deceived by things that sound good to us? Why Paul would write this. I'm telling you that all of the answers for every question you have, that the meaning you search for, that the spiritual life that you search for can be found only in Jesus Christ. And why do I have to tell you that? Why do I have to remind you of that? Because it is easy for you to be deceived by arguments that sound reasonable. Makes sense to me. Oh yeah, I like that. How many times do we, we agree with someone because we like what they have to say and we disagree, not because it's unfactual, but because we don't like it. We are prone to deception. We are prone to selfishness. We are prone to, to following our own way, if not warned and given a proper path to follow. Now, Paul gives a word of encouragement to the church there in Colossae and to us. I may be absent in body, but I am with you in spirit. And you might look around and oh, where, where, where? No, he's not talking about, you know, like he's doing some sort of transcendental meditation and, you know, casting himself out of his body. But, but instead he's saying, I am with you in the sense of, I believe in you. I, I am with you in fellowship with God. I am with you in supporting and praying for you. And as I look at your lives, I rejoice to see how well ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. Now, some of us might think that if, if a church leader, if, if someone like the Apostle Paul looked at us and said, your lives are well-ordered and your faith in Christ is strong, we just sit back and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we really are pretty cool. I mean, we're, we're very spiritual here. Uh, I mean, we, we, we do lots of good things for the sake of Jesus. And, and you might think that it's okay then just to sit back and relax and, and begin to walk the Christian life without being aware of doctrine or uh, without being aware of what you believe or what you're being taught. And, and Paul really doesn't give us that freedom he gives us a moment of encouragement and says, I know Jesus is in you. I know that you, you believe on him as your Lord and Savior. I know that you're saved, but I still got to warn you. He goes on to say this in, in verses 6 and 7. So then, because I know you're saved, because I know where your heart is, where your faith is, because I've seen fruit in your life, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. You've made this profession of faith. You believe on Jesus Christ. The word received there is not the way that we think of, I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Uh, the word that, that is used here, it actually leads us to, to understand that we were given the faith by the apostles and by the Spirit of God. In other words, there's a body of teaching that we have received. We have received the truth 
it's not that we ask Jesus into our heart one day. That's not what he's saying here. But what he's saying is you took what you learned and you made it part of your life. And what's the key component that you believe here? That Christ Jesus is Lord. And by believing on him, you have established this faith and you have already begun to walk a life that's different from before. And now I want to encourage you to continue to walk in him. And that picture of walking in Jesus is one of establishing a lifestyle that is centered around Jesus. Every time we see the, the, the metaphor of walk used in Scripture, when we're talking about faith, it's always in relationship to a continuing lifestyle. And so we're being shown here that we should have a continuing lifestyle centered around Christ Jesus as Lord, being rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Now, we have received Christ Jesus as Lord. What does that mean? These words all have meaning. The fact that Paul says Christ Jesus as Lord has significance. A lot of us maybe are, are in the mindset that, you know, his name is Jesus Christ. His middle name is H. I don't know what that means, right? right? We, we, we grew up around people who, who said that kind of stuff when we hit our finger with a hammer. And, and uh, listen, I'm not trying to be blasphemous, but I'm trying to say we have grown up with oftentimes a mistaken understanding of these words. We think that Jesus Christ is his name. In, in fact, what we must understand is that each of these words has spiritual significance. Christ, he is the Messiah, the anointed one. That is literally what the word Christ means. It was a Greek word that we took and shifted into English and reshaped a little bit. So we have Christ, and, and this is his role. Now, if you remember anything about the Old Testament, that we, as we walk through the Old Testament, what is the the, the, the story of the Old Testament from beginning to end, that there will come a man who will redeem mankind, who will save them. And he will be a prophet, he will be priest, and he will be king. And by the time we get to the first century, we, we have this word Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ that is prevalent. And Jesus walks in and says, I'm the man. I'm the dude. I'm the one you've been looking forward to. And that is his role. He is Christ. So when we talk about Jesus as Christ, this is his role as Savior and Redeemer and Restorer. He is the one who is the pinnacle of history. And then Christ, Jesus, and it's so important for us to understand who this Jesus is. He's Jesus of Nazareth, He's an, an historical man, a physical man who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And when we read his word, or his name, it's interesting. We need to understand that Jesus was actually a very common name in that day, uh, akin to if you're in our church, Steve, Michael, or Ken. Um, <laughs> Right? If, if your name is Steve, Michael, or Ken in our church, you, you just you, you yell out one of those names and you're going to get one of them uh, like immediately. It's just there's so many of us. But, but there's lots of Joshua's. It, it, that's actually the name in 
the original Hebrew, his name is Joshua, Yeshua. Anybody ever heard the, their Hebrew uh, roots friends talk about Yeshua? It's just that that's the, the way that Joshua would have been pronounced. And, and that, that is shortened up to Jesus. And, and so we end up with Jesus, the man from Nazareth, the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. His name means God saves. How awesome is that? To walk around with that name. My name, Michael, um, in, in, in addition to being uh, one of three, at least, Michaels in this church, uh, our name, it means who is like the Lord. And it's a question, actually. It's not a statement that we are like the Lord, but the name Michael is who is like the Lord. And what's the answer to that? No one. No one is like the Lord. The Lord alone reigns. My very name is a declaration to the glory of God. I'm so excited by that. Anyway, um, which is why the archangel Michael is such a big deal. He's walking around with a flaming sword going like, hey, you know, there ain't nobody like God. Anyway, uh, but Jesus, he's completely human. Now, this is answering some of the false teaching of the day. Because people in that day, false teachers in that day, were, were teaching that Jesus... Because he was God, there's no way he could have put on flesh because flesh is dirty and terrible. But that's not true. Jesus put on flesh. He walked as a man just like you and I. He was tempted in every way we, as we are, yet he did not sin that he might serve as the sacrifice for our sins. He lived a perfect life. He died a painful substitutionary death. He was literally buried for three days in a tomb covered over with a rock after having been anointed and wrapped in cloth. And he rose again bodily on the third day. How do I know? He was flesh and blood because scripture tells us that he made it possible for the, the, the disciples who were questioning to stick their fingers in the holes. He was really there in the beginning and he died and he rose again and was really physically there. When you say that you worship Jesus, you're talking about a man who was God incarnate. You're talking about a real historical person who literally lived, literally suffered, literally died, literally rose again on the third day. And there's no question. And the cool thing about the fact that Jesus came and lived and died in the flesh is that our flesh matters and he loves our fleshiness. He loves this part. It, all of this was created to his glory. And so just as he will redeem our spirit, he will one day fully redeem our flesh as well. And so we'll get to have bodies for eternity. Jesus is such an important part. Now, we, we look at Christ Jesus as Lord. A lot of us think of Lord and we think of Master and king. And that is true. That is an appropriate view. When you see the word Lord in the New Testament, it oftentimes can refer to Jesus as king. But what I want you to understand is it's also a, a subtle way for the Jewish apostles who were so familiar with the Old Testament to help connect the Old Testament with Jesus. Because the word Lord that is used here it is the same word used to represent the personal name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. Uh, so, so what I mean is, is that at one point, the Hebrew Bible, where the name of God is Yahweh, was translated into Greek by Hebrew scholars. And they used the word Lord in Greek to represent the name of God, the one true God of the Old Testament. So when you use this word, Lord, in the Greek, 
when you used it, you were saying Yahweh. So to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, it is to say he's king, but it's also to connect him intimately with the God of the Old Testament. To say he is Christ, he's the king, the Messiah, the one who would redeem me. He is Jesus in the flesh who lived and died and rose again. And he is Lord. He is the same God as the God of the New Testament. Fully revealed in flesh, come to make life as it should be. And so it it screams of his deity. That LXX, some of you are looking at that going, what does that mean? LXX. The Greek translation of the Hebrew New Testament that the Jewish people made for those who were part of what's called the diaspora or those who were spread out throughout the Greco-Roman Empire and only spoke Greek after a couple generations. And so the, the Jews made a Greek translation so that Jewish people could read Scripture in their own language when they only spoke Greek. And it's, it's called the Septuagint. And that's what that LXX means. If you're familiar with Roman numerals, what is that Septuagint right there? LXX, 70. L is 50, X is 10, X is 10, right? So that's 70. The story behind it is that 70 scholars sat down to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. And they all made a translation and then they brought their translations in. And every one of them agreed perfectly. That is not true. But that's the story. That's the apocryphal story. Actually, the Septuagint was a process. It took a number of years for the translation to to really come to pass and to coalesce. But it was this word, Lord, kurios, that was used to translate the name of God. And so in the New Testament, when we see Jesus is Lord, it's a direct connection to the God of the Old Testament, a declaration that they are one and the same. And so to say that Christ Jesus is Lord is to connect him to both his current work and what he did and who he is, but also to connect him to the past and all of the Old Testament. That everything that we see revealed in the Old Testament is still relevant because it's the same God speaking. It's the same God teaching. And now that we've lived in him and now that we are walking in him, and that's what we're commanded to do is to walk in him. Paul tells us to be rooted. And this rooted, it's, a, it's an agricultural term and, it, and, and duh, it means to go deep. It means to dig down, to be established. And when we look at this, we should think that he's talking about not actually growing roots because that's not possible for us but instead to understand it as there are things to our faith that are foundational that we must have in order to be strong. Did you guys know that when you look at a tree, especially most deciduous trees, deciduous trees are the ones that lose their leaves every fall. When you look at at a tree, especially a deciduous tree, that the root system is at least as big as the canopy. And for some species, it can be two to three times larger. And so when we, when we understand that picture, and, and Paul would have understood it, this culture would have understood it, they're much more intelligent than we sometimes give them credit for. In fact, uh, a street uh, person in this era was probably at least as wise and smart as some of the people we'd find on the streets of Pittsburgh this morning if we were to go ask a question or two. 
And so he's telling us that there are things where we must dig down deep and we can, it paints a picture of foundational beliefs. Brothers and sisters, you need to know doctrine. You need to know what you believe and why. It must begin with understanding that who Jesus is and what he did for you. Yes, and that is all it takes to be saved. But in order to avoid the deceptions that sound good, you must know what you believe and why. You must get into the scripture deeper and deeper as you mature so that you might be rooted. He says we're supposed to be rooted and built up. Built up as an architectural term. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. How can you have both roots and a building? He's, he's mixing metaphors. Paul likes to do this. And it's actually a, a normal practice when writing Asiatic rhetoric uh, or letters addressed to people in Asia Minor to mix metaphors. He uses a number of different ways to communicate. Why would he do that? Because people are dense. Did you know that we're, we're a little dense? And sometimes it takes two or three pictures for us to understand what is trying to be communicated. But he's also building up. He's used this kind of phrasing before in the letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, talking about both agricultural things and architectural things. He says that we are God's field. He says that he planted seed and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And then he goes and says, and no one should build on anything but the foundation of Jesus Christ. He he mixes up metaphors to help us understand. So he says we need to be growing deep in our faith and learning the truths of Christ. But we also need to be built up in our faith, to go up, to, to do things that are based on our faith. And those are works. We are not saved by good works, but good works should flow from a genuine faith. If you are not working out your faith with fear and trembling, working out your salvation, then you are missing out on the faithful things that you should be doing as a Christian. We're supposed to build up. And and ultimately, we come to a place where we are overflowing with gratefulness. Now, most of us probably would not describe ourselves this way. He says, as we mature as Christians, we should come to a place where more and more we are overflowing with gratitude. And this word overflowing, it literally means overflowing, right? I mean, there's no secret here. There's no special thing in the Greek to help us understand. It means like you're in the bathtub and you forget that you're running it, right? And the water's just overflowing the top. You, that that, that you're, you're getting that cup of coffee and, you know, you're trying to get every last drop in so that you can survive till lunch. or what, that, that It's this fullness, this abundance, this overflowing nature. And he says, what are we supposed to overflow with? Gratitude. Gratitude. Would, would that describe many of us on any given day? Or are we overflowing with gripitude? <laughs> oh, Lord. Again? Some more. Why? But the maturing believer is rooted, is building up, and is overflowing with gratitude. And these are the things that help us to continue to be faithful, to not fall to deception, to not fall to those arguments around us that sound good but are completely void of truth. Now, Paul continues, and he says this, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. So he says, watch out! That's what be careful actually means here. It literally means not just 
oh, maybe, maybe not. But watch out. There are things coming. Be aware. Keep your eyes open. Uh, you know, being a little bit of a, a prepper, a redneck, and you keep your head on a swivel. You've you got to constantly be aware. And aware of what? Watching out so that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, the word captive, it, uh, it, it is to, to kidnap, to seduce, or to take as a slave. That when you become captive, this isn't some sort of necessarily, you know, do-do-do kind of thing where you, you walk into it willingly, but it is, it is a snatching up. Brothers and sisters, he's telling us we have to be so diligent in our faith because at any moment we could be snatched up by lies. We could fall prey to things that sound good. And, and almost to the extent of we don't even realize it's happening until we're right there in the midst of it. So watch out. Keep your eyes open. Be rooted and built up and overflowing with gratitude, rightly focused, watching out for lies so that you don't all of a sudden find yourself a slave to those things that are not true. It says, you don't want to be captive to philosophy. Philosophy is an interesting thing. Um, when we look at the word, it actually means the love of knowledge. Philosophy is not a bad thing. Our minds were made to glorify God. But when they do not glorify God, they can lead us to some terrible places like we've already seen. And so to love philosophy or, or to love knowledge that is of your own uh, sourcing of your own heart, of your own mind, that is what will take you captive. An empty deceit, vain uh, lies, things that are meaningless ultimately, and yet they look really good and they, they seem like they'll be great, but they're, they are completely devoid of truth. And what are these kinds of lies based on? Well, human tradition, the elements of the world, but not Christ. Now, how, how do we get there? When we talk about philosophy, to, to have philosophy, to, to use your mind is a good thing. In fact, we're supposed to be thinking. Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Jesus says to the one who questions, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Your mind is part of your love for God when you use it properly and seek the things of God. But then when we understand we are supposed to be pursuing with our mind, not the things of this world, not human tradition, not the elements of this world that we're being taught in school and through television and music and culture, but instead we're supposed to be pursuing Jesus. Now, what does it mean to pursue Jesus? What does it mean to, to really base our lives on him, base our thinking on him. Well, we first we start with understanding all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus, are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. So when we have a question, where do we go? We go to Jesus. Now we have to understand that we don't go to the Jesus that we've made in our mind. We don't go to the Jesus that our culture has made and says, this is Jesus, the, the hippy dippy, everything's great Jesus. The Jesus who was just a good dude and taught some nice things about how to be kind to other people. But we go to the, the Jesus of the scriptures. And who is the Jesus of the scriptures? Well, the Jesus of the scriptures, when we understand that Christ Jesus is Lord, the Jesus of the scriptures is the God that we see from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. All of it is revealing to us 
this wisdom and this knowledge. How do we know that? Malachi 3.6, God tells us, I, the Lord, have not changed. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if Jesus in the Old Testament, Yahweh, Lord, Kurias, he's the one who reveals the truth of who he is and what he expects in the Old Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament, even after his life, death, and resurrection, what are his expectations and his standards? The same as they've always been. Same as it ever was. Jesus has not changed. And we must go back to the Jesus of Scripture, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus says this, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Don't think that I came to negate the Old Testament and so you can throw it all out. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In other words, Jesus is the only one who can live up to the standards of God on our behalf and pay for our sins. But that does not negate this law. It simply fulfills it on our behalf. And we still know this is what God would like of us now that we are saved. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. When will all things be accomplished? When Jesus returns. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus says this. Someone asked him, Teacher, which, is the, which, which command in the law is the greatest? Jesus says to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there's two rules that sum up everything you should know. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say, All the law and the prophets depend or hang on these two commands. What's interesting is a lot of us, as modern Christians, we like to look and go, okay, so all the rules that we have to live by is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. I love it. It's perfect. I can do that. And then we define what that means by our own definitions. But the thing is, is that Jesus says this about the law. He says, it is these two commands, love God and love others. This is what everything else hangs on. In other words, what does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love God? Well, it, it means to to follow the, the, the first four of the Ten Commandments, by all means, to, to have no other gods, to have no idols, to not misuse the name of God, to keep the Sabbath. You want to know what it means to love God? Start with those four things. That's what it means to love God. Well, what does it mean to love others? Well, I'm glad you asked. The last six of the Ten Commandments, to honor your parents, no murder, duh, uh, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no coveting. That's how we love others. Now, what's funny, what do we do as people? We love loopholes, don't we? I was a youth pastor for a number of years. I hated games, but it's just part of youth ministry. But you know why I hated games? Because there was always that one, usually a guy, that when you gave the rules of the game, they were like, yes. Well, what about when, and it's just like, shush, you're ruining everything. So then you have to make a rule to explain the rule. Well, what about, uh, and then so, so by the time you're done explaining the rules, an hour and a half has gone by, you know, because you have to make a rule to explain the rule, to explain the rule, and then some more rules to clarify the rule. When, if we had just played the game, you would have had fun. 
Why is everybody pointing at you, Evan? No. The, 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 the deal. But, but you get, we, we like loopholes, don't we? We want to know, well, what about, well, what about, let's just take one, one law, one law under loving others, no adultery. We go, oh, well, what does that mean? Well, let's tell you what it means. In Leviticus, we get a specific list of things that are disallowed for God's people regarding their relationships, their intimate relationships with others. What does it mean to not commit adultery? It means not with your aunt, not with your uncle, not with your cousin, not with your stepbrother or stepsister, not with your stepmom, not with Fido, not with somebody who's just like you, male or female. What does it mean to not commit adultery? Oh, well, well, what about, yeah, that too is off limits. Well, what about that's off limits as well? We're going to talk more about that next week. But, but the thing is, is, all the law and the prophets serve to give clarity to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, broken into the two tables, love God and love others, they serve to clarify the idea of loving God and loving others. Why do we need all these details? For real, you don't need to ask, do you? You understand. We all want loopholes. We all want to find our way around. So, so when we look at Jesus and we look at this wisdom and we look at what we're supposed to be pursuing, it's not just two little things and say, well, I love God and I love others. I'm good to go. But it is as a Christian taking the whole of his revelation into consideration when we make our life choices. Why? For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Paul says to us, Everything you see of God in the Old Testament lives right there in the heart of Jesus Christ. He is fully God in the same way that the God of the Old Testament. And so when you, when you look at Jesus, you are seeing in the flesh a revelation of the God of the Old Testament. And so they are intimately connected. And you have, who have been filled by him, You've been filled by the goodness, the wisdom, the spirit of Jesus Christ. And what do we know? Well, we know that he is the head over every ruler and authority. Jesus tells us in John 10, 10, that I and the Father are one. And so when we want to understand the wisdom and the knowledge that is stored up in Jesus and that treasure that we have, yes, it begins with salvation, but it continues with understanding that the whole of the Old Testament is the revelation of Jesus to us. The whole of the New Testament is the revelation of Jesus to us. And there is no, well, we can ignore that because it's older, where we can focus on this because it's new. It is instead a complete package. And so as we, as we move forward, we must understand, that, first of all, that Christ Jesus is Lord. Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the man, Lord, Yahweh. And so when we look to Jesus for answers, we are not just looking at him and saying, approve what I like. But we are looking to Jesus because he has revealed to us everything we need for life and godliness between Genesis and Revelation. Not that this thing is an idol, but within it we find all the words of God to reveal to us the fullness of Christ Jesus. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and he has revealed it all to us in his word, 
Genesis to Revelation. So what is, what is the take home for today? Watch out. Watch out. There are false teachers all around us trying to deceive us to follow after things that seem right to us. Well, that makes sense. That feels good. Yeah. And oftentimes they're trying to convince us of things that are in direct violation of the Word of God. Over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at what the Word of God has to say about some of the empty, the vain philosophies of this world. And that means that we have to know the truths of Christ if we're going to be watching out. How do, how do we know what to watch out for? Well, we, we must know our faith. We must be rooted deeply and building up and overflowing with gratitude and know the truth of Christ in order to be able to diagnose and point out what is a deception. And then finally, understand the deceptions of this world. It's important to, to look at what the world is telling us in certain areas of life and compare them to what God's Word says. And so, like I've mentioned already a couple of times, over the next few weeks, starting next Sunday, we're going to take kind of what's a, not a, a break from Colossians, but we're pausing going through Colossians to focus on this one idea, this one verse. Be careful that no one takes you captive. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world rather than Christ. So we're going to spend some time and we're going to look at some of the things that the world is trying to, to deceive us in. Some of the philosophies of this world. Next week is kids church and some of you with kids are like, okay, so we know that we'll be able to send them away and we're going to talk about sexual immorality. And not just about this is wrong and these people are terrible, but to try and build a foundation for understanding sexual morality so that we might diagnose what is sexual immorality biblically. We're going to talk about the American dream. We're going to talk about, on Easter Sunday, religious pluralism. Now, you might wonder, what does that mean? Well, that means, anybody ever seen the coexist sticker? That's a lie, <laughs> right? I mean, we always should get along, but we're not the same. And the culture keeps telling us it's all the same. Let's be people of faith. No. Scripture tells us otherwise. Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about religious pluralism. We're going to talk about men and women. Did you know we're different? And we're going to talk about politics. And we're not supposed to talk about politics at church, right? Now we're going to talk about politics and how it is a false religion. So other topics. If you look at this list and you go, well, what about... I want to encourage you to take a, 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 uh, get one of the handouts, take the connection card, write your name if you want, but on the back of it, on the prayer request area, to write on there a topic that you, you just feel like is a deception that's not on this list, and that'll give me an opportunity to maybe answer questions that are on your heart in a Sunday morning service instead of just what I think is most important. So I encourage you to do that. Send me an email. Send an email to questions at faithlakeside.com and don't sign it. I don't care. You know, create your own secret email for this. But, but don't be afraid. I, I, I ask a question if you're not sure about a cultural issue or an issue of the world where you feel like we're being deceived that's not on this list. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that we have a faith that is so worthwhile it is so valuable. It is so amazing. But the problem with our day and age is that too many believers are falling prey. And they are being taken captive by, kidnapped by, seduced by the lies of this world. 
and they are compromising the name of Christ and potentially even their own salvation by following after lies. And so we're going to look at the lies, and we're going to compare them to the truth, and we're going to be ready to watch out, to stand fast, to stand up against the philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world. And instead, we're going to see how we might base our thinking on Christ alone. As the worship team comes up, I just want to encourage you, take a moment. Think about the areas in your life where maybe the things that you believe don't quite line up with what you know to be true. And begin the process of of either studying God's word to see or repenting if you already know. And then join us over the next few weeks to see how you might more diligently watch out for the deceptions that come and consume us and kidnap us so easily. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word because your word is truth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you that that we can confidently declare everything we need to know about life and godliness is contained in what you've revealed to us. That you have been able to, by your glory and your goodness, give us all the answers to every meaningful question regarding our walk with you. And so help us to to take what you've said and to, to learn it over these next few weeks. To see your truth that we might not be taken captive by the lies of this world, by empty philosophy and vain, vain teachings. But instead, may our lives be centered on you as the way, the truth, and the life. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds in the coming days and weeks to chase after you and you alone. In your name we pray this morning. Amen.
Children of God, let's live like we're children of God and chase after Jesus and all the answers he has for us from Genesis to Revelation. Join us in the coming weeks. I look forward to discovering the truth together, standing on the truth together, declaring the truth together, and abandoning the lies that seek to deceive us and take us captive. God bless. May you have a great week. See some of you downstairs for a VBS uh, meeting. Oh, right here for a VBS meeting. Sorry, I, I didn't read the whole email probably. Um, and, then, and then others of you throughout the week, be sure to uh, RSVP for the Seder dinner if you're interested. And uh, if you've got questions about philosophies or concepts that you think would be good for all of us to hear the answer to, be sure to leave me a note, email me, let me know. God bless you guys.